If you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you were excused to kids' club. What do you do next? Maybe you've had this question before. Maybe you have come through a long work project and you're not sure what to do next. Maybe you are about to finish from school. Possibly you're just finished a nice dinner on a date night and you still have a babysitter for an hour or so. Or perhaps you've been waiting for something for so long, like springtime, and it's finally here. There's so many times in life when we are focused on one thing only to finish it and wonder what comes next. For those of us who follow Jesus, it could be simple for us to take two steps away from Good Friday and from Easter, where we have both mourned and rejoiced that Jesus went to the cross in our place, that Jesus defeated sin and death, by being raised from the dead. These are the most incredible stories of our faith. And yet often when it comes to our faith, we may not as quickly come to what comes next. What do we do with it? How do we respond to this? It would be easy for us to think that that is everything. That that's the whole story. That that's all that matters. And yet the story isn't over. In fact, it's not even close to being over. It's not even close to being close. This morning we're starting a series in the book of Acts, also called the Acts of the Apostles, which will help us with the question of what comes next. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, and now what? To be honest with you, I'm exceedingly excited to walk into this book with you. I've been praying for a while about stepping into this book. My intention for a couple of months has been to start this in the fall. And as I've prayed through it, I just couldn't stop and wait until the fall. So I wanted to start now. Because following the resurrection of Easter, it just seems so fitting for us to step into So this morning, as we step into the book of Acts, I want to start by giving you a sense of how the book of Acts fits into the storyline of the Bible. Because if we have this sense, if we start to see the Bible as a single book, those 66 individual books, and we see how it all plays together, how it's all tied together, I think that bolsters our faith. When we see that it, in fact, has a central message and a central storyline, So I want to give you this to start us off with. I'm stealing it from Mitch Mayer, a pastor in Houston. When he divides the Bible and says the Bible can be divided into five Christ-centered divisions. So let me give you these divisions. If you want an acronym, you can call it AMPEC. Anticipation, Manifestation, Proclamation, Explanation, and Consummation. I've got to clear my throat. So let's walk through this. The Bible, if you were to look at it this way, starts in anticipation. The book of Genesis through the book of Malachi. The entire Old Testament is living in the anticipation of the coming of Jesus Christ. It's been said that if you sat and read through the entire Old Testament, 
the one theme that you would come to is someone is coming, someone is coming. That the Old Testament contains prophecies that only he will fulfill, problems that only he can solve. It speaks of people who will prefigure his coming and pictures that foreshadow his work. The Old Testament talks about prophets, but there's a greater prophet coming. The Old Testament talks about priests, but there's a greater priest coming. The Old Testament talks about kings, but there's a greater king coming. It talks about sacrifices, but there's a better sacrifice coming. The entire Old Testament anticipates Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, there are two disciples the afternoon of the resurrection. Jesus comes upon them and finally they realize who he is. And it says this in Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself, which is to say this. Jesus sat with his disciples and walked them through the whole Old Testament saying, that was me, 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 still me, me again is me. The whole Old Testament speaks towards the anticipation of the Savior. And you come to a a second division in the Gospels, Matthew through John, which we will call manifestation. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That the one who's anticipated in the Old Testament is manifested in the Gospels. That if someone is coming, someone is coming, he's here. John the Baptist declares it this way, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The Lamb is here. And to read the Gospels would give you this theme because they record His birth, they record His life, His teaching, His ministry, His miracles, His death, and His resurrection the Gospels show us the full manifestation of the Savior. And then we come to the book of Acts. So if this guy is looked forward to, he's anticipated, he comes and he's manifested, and then in the book of Acts, he is proclaimed. Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This verse forms a framework for the entire book of Acts, giving us something of an outline. Because the book will trace for us the birth of the church by the coming of the Holy Spirit and the subsequent growth of the church. You see this verse played out as the early church proclaimed the gospel of Jesus in Jerusalem in chapters, Acts chapters 1 through 7. Acts chapters 8 through 12, you see the gospel spreading to the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. Beginning in Acts 13, you see the gospel spread to the Gentiles. In the book of Acts, the church is born, and it proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ through the known world. Fourth division, you'd come to Romans through Acts, help you put your whole Bible together. There are 21 books here that explain what was anticipated in the Old Testament, manifested in the gospel, and proclaimed in the book of Acts. That the Romans through Jude are letters that were written to both churches and individuals, addressing needs, problems, and questions. They explain the work of Jesus. And finally, the last one, the consummation, the book of Revelation. By the way, quick side note, it is singular. Book of Revelation, 
Don't add an S. One, it's a revelation. My pastoral note of the day. The one who is anticipated in the Old Testament, manifested in the Gospels, proclaimed in the book of Acts, is explained in the epistles, and he is consummated. It is, all comes together. It is finished in the book of Revelation. Though what started in Genesis filled is finished in Revelation. Revelation 11.15 says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That the Lord Jesus will return that he will establish his kingdom. The wicked will be judged, and those made righteous by Christ will be blessed forevermore. The book of Revelation consummates all of history. I want to put this together for you, the Bible in five words, because it's helpful to see the storyline. Whether anticipation, manifestation, proclamation, explanation, and consummation, the book of Acts fills in the middle as the proclamation of who Jesus was and what he accomplished. The book of Acts gives us the what do you do now following the resurrection. And it's the start of the proclamation that continues and will continue until the consummation when he returns. If you would turn with me into Acts chapter 1. As we start into our series and we continue to introduce it, we won't get very far into the book of Acts this morning. Acts 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Luke, the author of the book of Acts, writes to a man named Theophilus. Now, there is some discussion going on on whether Theophilus, a Greek word that means lover of God, is an actual person or if this book is written to uh, people who love God. Well, the argument is probably pretty quickly squashed when you recognize the name Theophilus was actually a pretty common name back then. It was, it was pretty common for someone to be named this. Now, who Theophilus actually is as a person, we don't really know. We do know that Paul, excuse me, Luke notes in the first book, which we need to quickly recognize as the Gospel of Luke. Luke writes two books, the Gospel of Luke and Acts. For a long time, it was actually considered one book. When they started divvying up the Bible, actually in the King James, it got divided and became two books. He starts the book of Luke in a similar way. You don't have to flip there, but this is what Luke 1, 1 through 4 says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke writes that many have already written down the works and the stories of Jesus. But that he too wanted to write an account. Please note verse 2. Many were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word who delivered them to us. Luke was not an eyewitness. In fact, Luke wasn't a disciple. Luke wasn't an apostle. 
In fact, Luke wasn't even Jewish. He was a Gentile, a word that can also be translated as pagan or person of the world. The distinction to be made here is that Luke didn't know God. And yet somewhere, somehow, Luke meets Jesus. Luke falls in love with Jesus, and his life so gets marked by Jesus that he gives up absolutely everything to follow him. There are several great hints to this in the text, and I want us to lean into a couple of those hints, because they're really, they tell a story to us. So if you'd flip over a couple chapters into Acts 16, and we look at verse 10, I want to show you a minor detail that tells a huge story. Acts 16.10 says this, and when Paul had seen the vision, this is the Macedonian vision to go into Macedonia, immediately, look at the pronoun, we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us, look at the pronoun, to preach the gospel to them. Now this verse won't immediately stand out to you until you start to recognize that this is the first we and us inclusive pronouns in the whole book. That this is the first time when Luke gets engaged in the text. You want to look at the preceding verses if you've got a Bible open in front of you. In 16.1, Paul goes to Derby and Lystra by himself. In verse 3, Timothy joins Paul. Now it's a they, it's not a he. Verse 4, they went on their way. In verse 6, they went to Phrygia and Galatia. In verse 8, they go to Troas. And in verse 10, we made plans. You see it? Something happened in Troas. Something significant happened in Troas. We don't know what. The text doesn't say. We don't know through a variety of other texts that Luke was a doctor. So possibly Luke lived in Troas. Maybe he was a practicing doctor in Troas. Maybe he was visiting relatives in Troas. We don't know. We just know he's in Troas and something happened. And that that something changes everything for Luke because it makes Luke a Gentile want to follow Jesus and take the gospel to Philippi a place that had never had it before if you study movements in the book of Acts I get it boring nerdy stuff right but you can figure out that at this point Luke starts taking mission trips. That he starts engaging world missions. That here in Acts 16, he goes to Philippi. And not long after the trip, the text returns back to a they. He continues to tell the story of Paul. And then in Acts 20 and 21, it becomes we again. Again, Luke jumps into the journey and begins to travel with Paul going from Philippi, which is kind of fascinating, that he should care so much about the Philippians that he would travel there a first time, that he'd care so much about him that he actually happens to be in Philippi to meet with Paul, which seems to suggest that Luke has a passion for the Philippians here in the gospel. 
Now, we know the Philippians because we've got a book written to them. What we don't anticipate is that the Philippians weren't always believers. That people had to go there and tell them about Jesus. And clearly Luke is a part of that. Because now we have him in Philippi at least twice, only according to what we know. And after this trip in Acts 21, the text returns back to a they. And then finally in Acts 27, Luke accompanies Paul again. This time, Paul arrested, traveling from Jerusalem to Rome. And Luke travels with him, assumably as his doctor providing for him, taking care of him. And that's all we know. Apparently he takes care of Paul to the end. Friends, I point all this out to you because I want you to see as we step into this book that Luke was not a disciple, that he wasn't an apostle, that Luke never saw Jesus, that Luke is a whole lot more like you and me than you think, and in fact, I'll take it a step further, he's way more like you and way less like me than you can imagine. Luke didn't go to seminary. Luke was not a professional pastor, he wasn't a minister, he wasn't even a missionary. Luke was a doctor who heard the gospel and believed. And what flushes out of that in the life of Luke is a passion for Jesus that changed absolutely everything about the course of his life. So much so that he began to travel all over the world to tell people about Jesus. That he began to use all of his free time to study the life of Jesus. And because he began to sacrifice greatly for the cause of Jesus. How do we know? Because the text tells us as we move towards finishing this morning, I want to hone in on these three shifts in Luke's life. First, we've pointed out his travels to Philippi, to Jerusalem, and Rome. And that's where you've got to kick in the fact that in the first century, when the vast majority of people never left about 30 miles from where they're born, now we have a guy who didn't grow up knowing about Jesus who didn't even grow up knowing about God, traveling hundreds of miles, and not on United Airlines, where you may or may not have a seat, and not on a train. Probably they walked a whole lot of it. Even to travel from Troas to Philippi is 150 miles, if you get a ship, and they may very well have taken a boat you still don't have an engine on that thing, right? This is a long journey that he walks into. Now, I can't imagine what his parents thought about this or the girl he was pursuing or any children he may not have had. We don't know anything about Luke's family life. We do know that Luke began to follow Jesus. We know very little about his medical practice. Did it end? Did it stop? Did he... Was he a traveling nurse? We know that Luke began to follow 
Jesus. And it took him all over the world. This wasn't his job. This was his passion. And it cost him something greatly. Secondly, we know that Luke studied Jesus thoroughly. According to Luke 1, verse 3, he followed all things closely so that he might write an orderly account. If we lean into that further, you would find that there are many unique features in Luke's gospel. Many unique writings, including the longest and most detailed narrative of the account of the birth of Jesus. What you garner from that suggests that Luke spent his free time, possibly when Paul's in jail, chasing down people to hear their stories, including women like Mary. Hey, tell me what it was like when he was born. Tell me that story again. And chasing down the disciples who walked with him, sitting with the eyewitnesses, Friends, we can never move past that. First Corinthians records that for us. That Jesus, having resurrected, was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses. These are people who can testify that he was raised from the dead. Now Luke wasn't an eyewitness, but Luke sat with eyewitnesses. Any of whom could have said, nope, didn't happen. No, that wasn't, that wasn't what happened. But Luke becomes so convinced, chasing down all the details, that he begins to write not a book, but two books, so that we'll know everything that happened, so that we might know Jesus, that we might know the gospel, which is to say this. That Jesus so radically impacted Luke that it changed how he spent his time. It changed what he read. It changed what he listened to. And it changed what he wanted to master in his life. And I don't know if he started off being like full on, I'm a doctor. But he ends full on, I follow Jesus. Jesus is what I will master. So much so that he writes a gospel. Think about that. Like a quarter, maybe more, of everything we know about Jesus comes from this guy's pen. And this brings us to our final point. And this is the point that these two settle on. Because Luke sacrificed. If you look at both Luke 1 and Acts 1, he did all of these things. And he wrote all of these things so that his friend Theophilus might believe. And that his friend Theophilus might be confident in his belief. Luke must have really liked Theophilus. In fact, Luke must have really, really cared for this man because is the love of Jesus prompted in him to pursue this guy 
Now, I don't know if it's Theophilus that makes him chase down Mary. I don't know if it's Theophilus that makes him chase down Peter. I don't know if that's his own faith. But he writes all of this down that he might believe. It's his love of Theophilus that causes him to research and to write two books. Roughly, by word count, in Greek, 27% of the New Testament. More than any other New Testament writer. In fact, Luke writes 5,000 more words than Paul, his mentor. Now, why do I point all of that out to you this morning? Because Luke didn't go to seminary. Luke wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a professional minister Luke was a normal guy who had a job. He was a doctor. And Jesus stepped into his life. He met Jesus. Oh, he never saw Jesus, but he believed in Jesus. And his belief in Jesus literally changed the world. And as we walk into the book of Acts, what we will begin to see coming from the hand of Luke, the guy who didn't believe and then believed and gave up everything for his belief, begin to tell you the stories over and over and over again about different people that God is going to use, that God is going to empower through his Holy Spirit some who are very much like you, some who are very different from you, God using a variety of people from a variety of different backgrounds, with different educations, with different levels of confidence, to step out and to proclaim the excellencies of salvation to a world who needs it desperately. Because the proclamation of the gospel, what Jesus had done, had begun. Now church, let me ask you this. Is it finished? Oh, I need it louder. It's not even close to being finished. It's not even close. We still live in a day and an age when the proclamation of Jesus continues. People like to joke about this. We're still writing Acts 29. The story of the church being built is still going forth. He's still moving. In fact, as we sit here this morning, he could be calling some of you who have jobs. Some of you who have far too much on your plate. To follow him. He could be charging you and asking you to do things you don't have time for. He could be putting challenges before you that he wants you to step out under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and be faithful to see his gospel proclaimed and that very well could put you on a plane. See, Luke did missions. And he wasn't a missionary. And you have that option. Luke traveled. 
he went to see the gospel proclaimed, which is to say, Jesus could call any of you into full-time missions, but he could also use you in short-term missions. For the last two years, we've sent trips to Rwanda. We intend to do it next year. God may be stirring an infection in you. That's an affection, not an infection. That'd be totally different. You've got an infection, we've got doctors, they'll take care of that. God could be stirring an affection in you for the world to see the gospel go out. And if that's Rwanda, awesome. But you know what? If it's somewhere else, that's pretty awesome too. I mean, if you come to my office and say, Ben, I'm, I mean, I'm full on. Jesus is calling me to go to Saudi Arabia. And this is where we're at. Like, we'll pray through that. And we need to send you. We'll send you. And I just freak some people out on the missions board and like trustees who think we have money. That's fine. The whole point of our Grow the Vision campaign, the whole reason why we've been radically trying to pay down our mortgage is to free up resources so that our church could be more generous in sowing the gospel throughout the world. Oh, and friends, that's definitely here. We have refugees all over us. In fact, I'd suspect there's not a direction you can't literally point right now and not be pointing at a refugee in our community. Yesterday, I was in Walmart. I like going to Walmart. prefer it way more than Target, not for political reasons. But one of the fascinating things in Walmart is there wasn't a single cashier in the whole place that didn't have a hijab. Not the, the whole run of them, all Muslim women. Every guy I ran into that store, I'm guessing, was not born here. Had some really cool conversations. Friends, you don't have to get on a plane to go on a mission trip. It's in our backyard. And it's in your front yard. It's at the store. It's everywhere. It's possible that God's calling you to respond to that. And it's possible that God's calling you to spend more and more and more of your time studying Him so that you might know Him. And it's possible God's calling you deeper and deeper into His Word And you need to lean into that and make that commitment. That some of you have been saying for a while, I need to get up earlier to spend time in His Word. Can I encourage you now to pull out your phone and set the alarm? Like there are all sorts of things we intend to do. And if we don't do them, they don't get done. God could be calling us, like He called Luke, to to study him, to know him better. And he could be calling you, like Luke, to begin to sacrifice more and more and more. And whether that's your time or your resources or both, God has always called people to sacrifice to ensure that people hear the gospel. To ensure that people like Theophilus are built up in the faith. And even in this, Luke writing to build up Theophilus, we are edified. 
that the church is always edified by the work of the saints. And of course, it's possible that God is calling you to do all three of those things because as we lean into this book, we'll find that it's normal in the lives of believers that we'd be doing all of them. And in fact, we lean into the New Testament as believers in Jesus, we're called to all three unequivocally if you love jesus it should impact your life it should cause you to do things for the cause of the kingdom that the world considers strange it ought to take up your time it ought to take up your checkbook and it ought to take up your calendar why Because it's always been normal in the body of Christ. Always. It's only in our culture that we buy into a cultural Christianity which suggests, I should go on Sunday. And then I'll be done. Check. Friends, that's not Christianity. That's not even close to Christianity. That's like library membership. It's nice. But the end of everything, it's not going to get you anywhere. The beauty of the book of Acts is you run into the stories of men and women who love Jesus and are radically transformed by it. Let me end with this. Luke wrote two books to Theophilus. The first he wrote, that Theophilus might know everything Jesus began to do and to teach. And the second book that Luke wrote to Theophilus, amongst other things, is that Theophilus would know what Luke did with what he heard. That Theophilus would know how Luke responded to the gospel. That Theophilus would know and would see the example of what the gospel did in his life. How it affected him. How it changed him. What impact it was having all over the world. The beauty of the book of Acts is Luke doesn't even make himself the subject. He's not the main character. He's actually kind of hard to find in his own book. But it testifies that Luke did something with what he heard. So let me give you this. The first book is already written for you. We have the Gospels. We know who he was and we know what he did. What will your second book look like what will you that's not plural that's individual do with what you've been given in jesus will you take it and bury it or will you invest it and will you allow jesus to so radically impact your life that you'd even consider doing crazy things for his kingdom. And it doesn't have to be that crazy. There are plenty of non-crazy things 
I've always joked the problem with books like Radical, written by David Platt, which is a phenomenal read, is that books should be retitled normal. That we have this idea that this is what people way out there do, when the gospel kind of says, this is what normal people following Jesus do. I'm spending a lot of time this series praying that God, through the Holy Spirit, will awaken us and will call us to step out, to listen to him and to be faithful in all he'll call us to do in Fargo and Moorhead and throughout the world. Let me pray for us and we'll be done. Gracious Father, thank you that you've allowed your word to be saved for us, that we could know you We could know your heart. We could know your vision. We could know your plans. Thank you that you've recorded testimonies over and over in this book that declare to us that following Jesus is not a weekly meeting. But that following Jesus is loving the world. It's sacrificing our time and our resources. It's taking on the cause of Christ. It's building the kingdom. Father, as we step into this, may this not be a book study where we grow smarter. Father, it would have been so easy for Luke to have just become a historian and to have said, I don't have time to go to Philippi. i got to write. And yet, Father, you radically changed him and the world through him. Father, grow all of us up, every single one of us, whether we're five or 80, to an awakening of what you desire to do through us to build your kingdom. There is not a single soul in this room, God, that you don't have a desire and a plan to use mightily. Father, give us the boldness to trust you and to step out in faith to follow you. It's in the mighty name of your Son, who died, who rose again, and is reigning at the right hand of the Father. It's in his name we pray. Amen.